Welcome to Pod Academy. I'm Christopher Daly. These days, we're used to hearing about the power of banks, GDP percentages, hedge funds, shareholders, stock market reports, house prices, the business cycle, deficits, debts, surpluses. But has it always been this way? Has money and finance always been such a prominent focal point for the popular consciousness? And if so, how has the representation of money changed? And what does this tell us about our society? To try to explore some of these questions, I went to speak with Professor Nikki Marsh from the University of Southampton, who has published widely on the interactions between finance, literature and popular culture. I started by asking how she became interested in this line of research. It was actually visual culture that looped me into it, although it's taken a long time to get back to that. So when I think about the, the moment, I've been working on questions of, of publics, counterpublics and politics and gender for a long time, and I've been working on, in my teaching, British culture in the 1980s and the, the changes that took place in, in the 1980s. And I was thinking about the next project, and I was thinking about Gilbert and George. And there's an, a quote from Gilbert and George when they just say, everything's always just about money. And... And I can remember the moment really, really clearly and thinking, no, that's true. I'll just do that. <laughs> um, and so there was initially this kind of two strands that I, I tried to keep going. One is a, is a political commitment to research. Why do we do research? We do research. We can illuminate things we don't understand in the world that need to be illuminated. So then I'm interested in the processes of financialization, the financialization of every day, of neoliberalism, governmentality, of, of how these politics have made their way into, their, into mainstream life. And the second thing I'm interested in is the question of representation and money. So what actually is money itself as a form, as a phenomena? How do we think about it as an abstract thing? How do we think about it as a material thing? And they're the two strands of that that I, that I pulled to my Gilbert and George quote. So that, of course, then led into a monograph that was produced in 2007. It came out just at the moment of the financial crisis erupting, really. And that was entitled, just so the listeners can know, was entitled Money, Finance and Speculation in Re- Recent British Fiction. And you analysed here a kind of wide variety of literary texts, ranging from Ian Fleming's Goldfinger through to kind of Helen Fielding's Bridget Jones novels in the late 1990s. Could you just give us a kind of brief potted history, if you will, of how British fiction's representation of money and finance has changed since the Second World War up to the present day? Sure. So if I think about it in terms of um, finance in particular, think about it in terms of, kind of the, the financial class, the way in which that's represented, the 50s and 70s were very quiet periods. Kind of questions of financialization weren't central. I think because the model of the, 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 the economy that we were working with was largely Keynesian. So I don't know if you've ever seen a Phillips machine, a picture of a, of a Phillips machine. So yes, Phillips machine yes. was designed by... Um, a very kind of maverick economist to imagine the British economy. We could imagine the British economy as a flow, as a kind of hydraulic machine that we could pull the levers of, of monetary control and we could, we could influence consumer spending, taxes, investments and exports. So I think in that period, the very way in which the economy was imagined as a finite national thing that governments could control in, in relationship with capital meant that there wasn't the same interest in speculation. It just wasn't possible. It was, there wasn't a culture for it. And then we know that we know that story that, that things began to change in the, in the early 70s. And then in 79, obviously, in Britain, we had uh, the Conservative government coming in. And then I think it's really then only 
although these things that come beginning to appear in the 70s, really in the 80s, that this question of financialization appears in literary text as a, as a main theme. And I was interested in the way in which it appears in, in some texts as the theme, in, in, you know, in Amos's money and in Carol Churchill's serious money. But the way in which the banker figure as a kind of fulcrum for other kinds of anxieties appeared in a range of really, really different texts from the 80s onwards. Goldfinger is the key novel for the earlier period for me. It was published in 1959, which is the same moment that the offshore economy began, that people began trading in dollars outside of America, and that that, that the connection between sovereignty and and money was broken, if you like. So it's the beginning, I think, of of globalisation. I think Goldfinger is a really, really interesting novel in that Fleming, I think, knew this. Fleming did his research at the Bank of England. He'd been an investment banker. He liked the secret, shady side of of finances, and he kind of went back into research for Goldfinger. So I think Goldfinger is the one text before the 80s that really acknowledges this kind of global vision and the idea that these, these flows of money threaten the nation. So then in the 80s it becomes thematized, and then in the 90s it becomes mainstream, it enters the world of popular literature, and I think it becomes kind of celebrated. There we have novelists like kind of Michael Ridpath on the bestsellers list, and bankers become a kind of cultural hero in the 90s in that fiction. And now, and now of course we have crash literature. We have a whole new kind of genre of writing that's being talked about as a, as a genre in the novels by Sebastian Fawkes, by John Lanchester, by Alex Preston, by Justin Cartwright, that are dealing with the aftermath of the financial crisis. One novel that I particularly wanted to talk about, and that's Martin Amis's Money. Um, and I was wondering if you could give, because this is kind of a key novel that a lot of people talk about from the early 80s, that really kind of addresses the kind of changing cultural relationship with money that was taking place under, under Thatcher. I was wondering if you could just firstly give a kind of brief synopsis of that novel and then tell us what it was kind of saying about the changing relationship to money. So in, in the novel, we have the character, this kind of anti-hero of, called John Self, who works in advertising and he's going to make a film. And the film is of his life and it's called Good Money. And the, the story of the novel is the story of his failure to make this film. The story of his kind of own personal lapse into alcoholism and to drug abuse and to some kind of madness, his own abasement in the novel. And at the same time, running alongside that is the, his ability to make this story, the story of, of good money, the story of his life. And it changes the title between good money and bad money. One of the, ways, the most obvious ways in which the novel can be read in terms of the 80s is about this culture of, of excess. It's about the culture of the ways in which the, the codes for money, the languages for money, are both sexualised and rendered violent. So it's a very sexually violent novel, it's a very kind of, in that Amos excess, slightly kind of caricature, parodic way. So I think that was what, one of the most obvious things that's going on in terms of how the novel is dealing with the way in which we see money. And it's you know, similar to lots of other things, you know, like Carol Churchill's um, Serious Money, in that it's thinking about the financial sector as a kind of grotesque, carnivalesque phenomena. But I think it's actually quite a subtle and complex novel in terms of what it's saying about money, because I think what Amos perceived in that novel, which hadn't really been fully articulated, was the difference between finance capital and, in, and industrial capital. So I think what we see in Self is we see Self as this kind of working-class character who comes from industrial capital, not quite understanding the machinations of finance capital that he's relying upon. And it's finance capital that tricks him, that trips him up. It's finance capital which Amos links to the class system very clearly in that novel that, is, that has become um, hegemonic, that is becoming powerful, but is also kind of 
that's silent and can't be seen. So we've got Self's kind of grotesqueness, and he represents, I think, the, the crisis of industrial capital, the failing of that kind of, of masculinity in particular that, that occurred in the 1980s and has been written about in lots of other ways. And, we, and the, what, what Amos is also saying is this finance capital that's done that. The characters that are the characters, his adversaries are finance capital itself, kind of personified, and so it's a very sophisticated way, and it's the novel form itself that uh, Amos can put these two things into dialogue. Uh, and I suppose, therefore, we could see that John Self, as you said, coming from a kind of working class background, the kind of industrial capital, that this kind of new form of capital is one that has a new kind of exclusivity to it, that it's of a particular class, or a particular emergent class that we might see emerging in the late 80s, particularly. I'm just thinking of the yuppie or something like this. And that how it's not so easy to kind of transcend these kind of class positions and that it's actually a lot more messy than that. Well, I actually think that one of the things, that one of the, the justifying fantasies of finance capital in the late 80s was that a narrative of meritocracy, of the barrow boy, mm. of the yuppie, of the kind of, um, of the Londoner who was just very good on the market stall going into, going into, into the city. And we see that narrative being reproduced again and again on, in television and, and in novels. It's in, it's in Lodge's Novel Mice Work, for example. The research on the demographics of who worked in the city in the 80s proved that that was just a, a fantasy, that actually it remained a very middle-class profession. There were some individuals who did it, but in terms of its kind of cultural power, it remained entirely, not entirely, but predominantly, um, thr- Lation and Thrift have done this research and so suggested actually this didn't really happen. And I think that that's what Amos is also putting his finger on here, that the, the characters who are controlling finance are upper, are upper middle class and they, they talk about it in terms of kind of taste, they talk about liquidity preference in Italian shoes, and it's part of this kind of language that, that John Self doesn't understand and we'll never understand. So I think Amos is actually saying that those class politics weren't messy. I think they were saying that they were actually coming further and further apart and that possibilities for class mobility were being reduced rather than enhanced to what was happening in that moment in the city. I, I just wanted to move on a little bit to... You've, you've partly addressed this, I think, by talking about Amos's money, but I wanted to pick you up on a quote you make in the introduction to your monograph, Uh, You say the following, I'm going to quote here. I argue that fiction is an important site for disrupting the ideological naturalisation of conventional economics that has has successfully diminished the political analysis of the money economy in much cultural discourse. I was wondering if you could just elaborate on that by kind of outlining precisely how you see, I think you've talked about, obviously talked about money, but how you see some other fictional works challenging certain economic assumptions or certain economic orthodoxies. What these texts did, because that's the nature of fiction, is they placed these assumptions about the money economy into a wider social context. So they, 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 they lived it, and, and they made its assumptions about... They were able to critique and realise certain kinds of assumptions about class, about gender, but also about things that were more um, embedded in that kind of neoliberal economic model, so assumptions about rationality, assumptions about efficiency, were critiqued in this fiction. But I think the other thing that I would that I argue in the book is that the fi- fiction does lots of different kinds of things. I don't think fiction simply critiqued the economy. So the, the financial thrillers that emerged in the 90s often 
were very ambivalent. They kind of celebrated this figure of the banker. They were written by ex-bankers often. They were written initially for, for bankers. And I think that they didn't necessarily disrupt intentionally, certainly, these assumptions. I mean, what they, what they allowed to become evident was that there's something kind of catastrophic and destructive within this system that will destroy itself. But they also gave us the myth of the rational banker and that he was a kind of the, the hero banker. So not all literature critiqued it in the same way, I think, but literature did, by putting these assumptions about rationality, which assume that you know, the real can be bracketed off, but what realism did is, is it, it challenged that bracketing off. And so, for example, the, the women's novels that I were, was writing about are very, it's very interesting, we think of Bridget Jones, but we don't notice the fact that her feminist character is, is a banker. Or Alison Pearson, that, that, I don't know how she does it. She's a hedge fund manager. And that what, what we see in that novel is the idea that women should be allowed to manage novel makes women grotesque. And that's another narrative that reoccurs. So I think that it disrupted these assumptions in lots of different ways. I'm also really intrigued by your claim in the previous quote that the current economic system has been naturalised within much cultural discourse. And I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit about that and tell us about how maybe in kind of everyday culture and in fiction and in visual culture how this kind of works in the contemporary. One of the things that, that, I work, that I've been working on both during the book and then after the book when I've been writing about, about the crash, obviously, was the way in which these natural metaphors of finance, and I'm particularly interested in the metaphor of the way in which um, sex and reproduction has been used in these languages of finance. On the one hand, it's used in that way in which Amos uses it as this kind of sexualization of the figure of the banker. Um, but there was also a language of... of desire of reproduction of growth in the way in which we saw money money just came from money and those people who could who could oversee this kind of reproduction of the money were sexualized by that in some way by this language of kind of masculine reproduction that was happening what happened during the crisis and not just the 2007 and 8 crisis i think one of our problems with the 2007 8 crisis in, in terms like the great recession is that we fail to historicize it in terms of the and we, f- we forget how frequent these crises aren't. We have these crises every decade or so. They're not. They're part of capitalism. They're not the interruption of capitalism. So what we see in the crisis is we see those metaphors of regeneration, reproduction, and of and of sex and desire becoming perverse, becoming toxic. And we see that. We can see that in the 80s. We could see that in the 1997 um, Asian crash. And we could see that in the 2007 8 crash. So suddenly we get. Um, in, if the blood is the, if money is the blood of the economy, then that blood becomes infected. Is a metaphor we saw in all three of those, in all three of those crises. So we have the metaphors of toxicity, we have the metaphors of the zombie, we have those kinds of languages of perversion and of destruction happening. That the, the economy has become diseased, and the question I think has always been then: Is that disease a disease? Is that naturalising this economy? Because what happens after disease? We recover. We get better, we cleanse ourselves, which is the, the language that the financial sector was trying to use really, really early on. Greenspan was using really kind of in early 2008 that things were kind of better. Andy Haldane was saying kind of similar things in 2008. Or is it that we can't actually recover and that that language doesn't work again, that that disease has, has corrupted that language and we don't trust that language anymore? I, I think that that's what's happening. So when I think of the, the Wolf of Wall Street... Um, which is a you know, grotesque, almost unwatchable film, but also very, very compelling at the same time, we see the language. It's a very familiar narrative. You know, it, it feels as if it could have been made in the 80s in terms of how it's representing bankers. But whatever their sex is, whatever the drives, the libidinal drives that were in the centre of that film, they're not natural. 
those characters are abject, those characters are perverse in their excess. So I think the language of the natural is really under strain now. I don't think we believe that it's natural. I think it does I think it doesn't work. I think that we're in a moment in which power is still operating, the financial sector is still the most powerful sector in the economy, but that our languages for it aren't effective anymore. I think they are they're under strain. That that's really intriguing actually what you say there, because what some people have been arguing about our current situation sitting here in the middle part of 2014 is that the economy has kind of recovered and that we are back to natural good health but you're saying that that kind of language that you know the similar sort of so for example the front page of the times today this is the 9th of may 2014 (laughs) said that the great recession was over are you saying that that kind of language, that it's just, you know, this was just a, a kind of temporary illness and that the, we've now recovered from it, that that kind of language is not hitting home, really, in a kind of broader cultural sense? People are not buying it and feel that actually there is something sick and wretched within the economy and that it's not going to recover and that we need to think of a new language for describing it or a new, new system, even. I don't want to be too overly optimistic about this because obviously, you know... It's a very conservative moment as well, and that it's produced a kind of it's invigorated the right, the right as well as the left, the crisis. And I wouldn't want to underestimate that or, or ignore that. But I do think that um, the promises that neoliberalism made in the 1980s, the assumption, for example, that privatisation was better than state-owned um, or, or state-managed services, I don't think people believe that anymore. I think that's the core to it: is that that people did used to think the market could do things effectively. And now I don't think they do believe that anymore. And I think so. I think that they might, people might want to see things back as normal, but I think that's driven from fear rather than from hope. People can't imagine an alternative and they want and they don't want their pensions and their, their jobs to be, to be worthless. So they do have to kind of carry on this because there's no alternative to imagine. But I don't think they believe in the promises, the economic promises of that neoliberalism was successful in promulgating in the 80s. It's a well-worn slogan that covers this conference, but these are the voters that will swing the election. In work, but hard-pressed. Aspirational, want to get on. But with banks demanding big deposits, many can't own a home. So David Cameron's first conference move was to say the government's help-to-buy scheme will open for business three months sooner than planned. So what I want to just get, leading on from that is I want to get your thoughts upon a government scheme that's had a lot of press coverage and seems to be an attempt to reinvigorate a kind of the idea of the homeowning democracy amongst Tory supporters particularly. And that's the uh, help to buy scheme. Um, And I find this fascinating about how this is represented in the media. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Sure. I mean, I think the help to buy scheme is clearly trying to evoke the success of the right to buy of, of Thatcher's council house policy in the 80s. And that was a very, very successful policy in that it made people identify their homes as sources of as speculative assets and identify themselves as conservative through that process. I think that that helped buy also actually illustrates the failure of that as an aspiration for this government as well. It's much more contested. It's contested. I mean, even the Adam Smith Institute has rejected this as a policy and suggested it's just going to lead to another housing bubble. Um, and this person is very funny about this. They say that usually what happens after a crisis is we respond, we shut the stable door, uh, we respond to the thing that caused that crisis and therefore create another crisis. And he said, in this one, we're not, we're just kind of opening the stable door wider. 
where we're reproducing the conditions of the crisis. So I think it hasn't got much traction, and I think it kind of ideologically and discursively in public culture it hasn't either. It's too obvious and too crude. So turning to your more recent research, um, you're currently a member of the project team for an art exhibition that's entitled Show Me the Money, the Image of Finance, 1700 to the Present, uh, which will be opening this summer, June 2014. I was wondering if you could just outline both the content of this exhibition and its kind of major aims and what your role is in that exhibition. So the aims of the exhibition are to examine the ways in which visual culture more generally and and fine art more specifically have imagined and revealed and conceptualised and critiqued the the role of finance and the materiality of money from the financial revolution to the to the contemporary. So we've got kind of two kinds of material. We've got historical material. We've got you know Hogarth and, and Gilways from the 18th century, um, and kind of ca- cartoons from the present too that are exploring the ways in which finance entered the everyday from that period onwards. And then we've also got a series of new of new commissions. We've got uh, an, an arts council grant allowed us to do that on top of the the JRC kind of historical research. So we've got Imo Clink, Neil Bromwich, and Zoe Walker, Cornford and Cross, Molly Crabapple, and Golden Placenaby who are doing new work or new or work that's new to the UK. So we've got work in terms of representing the ways in which art has been involved in, in, in critiquing the, the financial sector. And there are two aims to the, to the exhibition. So one, we're trying to explore the history of abstraction. So the history of finance is the history of moving further and further away from the material base of the economy to, to the sign, you know, to the, to the Bitcoin is the thing that we have now, just a series of, a series of uh, digits representing money. And we're showing that in the way in which artists have negotiated that, that gradual kind of historical shift over the last three centuries, but we're also trying to resist that narrative of abstraction as well. So the, the, we're over four sites, but three geographical locations, and each one of those we're picking up the way. So we start in Sunderland, we start the home of Northern Rock, then we moved to Jane Austen's house in Hampshire. Her brother was involved in a financial crisis that, that ruined the village. And then up to Manchester, you know, the scene of the ongoing crisis in the, in the cooperative movement. And so we'll be pulling out next to these works that are about the abstraction of art, works that are called attention to the kind of historical materiality that crisis itself reveals. I'm thinking about the three specific crises that occur in our locations. And in terms of my, my specific role, there are five of us involved and we're each cur- curating a separate section of the exhibition and I'm responsible for the debt and credit section so I'm interested in the ways in which we think about public credit where we think about paper money I'm interested in the ways we think about private credit where we think about the history of the credit card or private loans and the visual language for credit is a language of ascension so I can do this kind of nice thing where I trace the way in which the metaphor of the balloon has been used in advertising and in satirical cartoons from the 18th century onwards credit allows us to escape we, we move through time and space through credit Whereas debt is the opposite. The visual image for debt are images of imprisonment. Debt is the thief of time. It's been called since the Middle, of eight, middle Ages. You know, we associate it with guilt. We associate it with failure. So I'm interested in the, in the artistic texts and representations that, that show this about debt, about debt as a debasement and an imprisonment. But then the narrative of the two sections are it seeks to kind of problematise the neat dichotomy between credit and debt. Because as well as being the opposite to one another, of course, they're also the same. When we get credit, we get into debt. That actually, we, actually all credit is, is the financialisation of debt as a social promise. So now I'm pulling on the work of recent people like David Graeber, who's book Debt, everyone has been reading this year, 
And he suggests that actually debt is a social relation. It's about reciprocity, it's about mutuality, and it's not the same as credit. So we're also trying to think about the way in which the art object itself shows us debt, shows us that debt can be a, a way of, of exchanging outside of finance as well as within it. If you'd like to see the exhibition, Show Me the Money, the image of finance, 1700 to the present, it is shown at the following sites. The Northern Gallery for Contemporary Art in Sunderland, between the 13th of June and the 30th of August 2014. The John Hansard Gallery, in collaboration with Chawton House Library, between the 19th of September and the 22nd of November 2014. And also the People's History Museum, Manchester, between the 11th of July 2015 and the 25th of February 2016. You can also find further information at the exhibition's website, imageoffinance.com. Thank you for listening.